J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Welcome to The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today we'll listen to a pre-recorded podcast of me speaking in New York City in May of 2017 on the subject of what causes suffering. I hope you enjoy. The Vedic Worldview basically is that suffering should be foreign to the human. It's one of the opening lines of a particular sukta of Rigveda, that suffering should be foreign to the human. Patanjali, who was the great Maharishi who wrote 2,700 years ago, wrote the Yoga Sutras. One of his sutras is Heyam Dukham Anagatam. Heyam Dukham. Dukkha is suffering. Heyam is suffering that's not here yet. Future suffering should be avoided. Avert the danger which has not yet come. Heyam dukkam anagatam. And suffering is a very interesting topic because there is a strange enough comfort in it. There is in it the potential for addiction to it. And, you know, no one intentionally, so we would say, would cause themselves to suffer or live in suffering. But suffering is something from which we can gain a certain protection as well. Not everyone who suffers does that, and I'll openly acknowledge that. Suffering of someone who doesn't know how to come out of suffering is not blameworthy. We don't blame people who suffer. But we have to acknowledge that with sufficient understanding, perspective, technique, broaden consciousness, if we have those things, suffering gets minimized. And so when we talk about suffering in the West, very often we talk about it in terms of who is to blame for it. Who's to blame for the suffering? And typically our approach to that whole subject of blame is a very Western approach, the non-objective approach. Someone had to have caused something to happen to somebody else. So somebody else is to blame for something, or somebody is to blame for their own suffering. So we're looking for this thing of blame, because 
in the West, we've grown up indoctrinated by concepts of guilt. Who's guilty of what? And, you know, what is the sentence for guilt? And our religions, as we have interpreted the Eastern religions, and there are only Eastern, except for tribal American religions, which obviously have been here for thousands of years, the religions that we refer to as Western religion actually came from the East, without exception. Our interpretation of those Eastern religions has, and especially the Middle Eastern religions, has been that of suffering playing a role, perhaps even of a religious nature. God likes you to suffer. Suffering is a test. Suffering is something that somebody may have done for you in order to remove your future suffering. And so suffering is a commodity that can be traded. You can trade it. Suffering may be something that we may not know how to come out of, and those who guide us also don't know how to get us out of it. And in consequence of that, and in desperation, perhaps it's told to us that suffering is good for you. It gives you character. But then, if that were true, then we must live in a world that is filled with character because the appalling levels of suffering in the world today, if suffering is a character-giving phenomenon, it must be a world that's absolutely filled with character. When we study art, we are often told that it is the angst, that is to say the stress of the artist, that causes the creativity. If it were true, then we could go about systematically torturing art students <laughs> so that they could come out with beautiful Vincent van Gogh-style paintings. There is a lack of logic in the idea that suffering is good, that suffering has value, that suffering builds character, suffering produces the greatest art, suffering produces the greatest music, and so on. If it were true, then logically, suffering should be something that we don't try to eliminate, that we seek out. And we should have courses in deep suffering. But apparently, we don't believe in that concept quite that much, that we should take a course in suffering, or that we should have a God in heaven who is delighted at the suffering of the earth because suffering is so good for everybody, or this idea that suffering creates creativity, expresses creativity, then in a suffering world, a world of appalling suffering, there must be just enormous creativity, but we don't find it. So there are holes in our logic, and we have a lot of bewilderment around this subject of suffering. The Vedic worldview comes straight out and says, it's not actually part of the human repertoire when human means the entire field of consciousness of the human being experienced. When consciousness is being experienced in full spectrum, yes, there will be demands made on an individual, and that individual can interact with those demands in effective ways. Demands and pressure, challenges, 
when in interaction with somebody who is possessed of their full resources of consciousness, cause, as a result of that interaction, creativity, intelligence, release of energy. But if the reaction to demands and pressures and deadlines and change is a stress reaction, then we don't see creativity, we see its opposite. We see a narrowing down into a binary function, fight or flee. Which would you rather, fight or flee? Fight, kill the demand for change, make it not a demand, or flee from it. Anything from literally running away to becoming catatonic, go into a state of no experience. So we have a view of suffering and we have ways in which we, without solutions to this, we start manipulating suffering. One of the most common ways in which this is expressed, according to psychiatrists to whom I speak, is hypochondria, which in fact afflicts a large number of people in the West. In Americans, it's estimated that nearly half the population suffer from a degree of hypochondria. What's hypochondria? Hypo, low. Chondria, health. Low health symptoms. In hypochondria, what happens is somebody comes up with a reason for not having to meet the social standard. And the reason for not having to meet the social standard will be something that is very hard to diagnose. Or if it can be diagnosed, it's impossible to cure. A person who suffers from this affliction is afraid that people are going to expect of them a standard performance of some kind that meets the social standard. And so they might, when you ask them to come on the picnic, they might say, no, you go on the picnic. I wish I could come on picnics. I, it's fine for you to go on picnics. And, you know, I, I know that you get a lot done every day, things like picnics and productive work and all those things. But I wish I could do that. But for me, you see, just getting through a day is a miracle and you wouldn't be able to do it. If you had my suffering getting through a day, you wouldn't be able to do it because compared with me, you're not robust enough to handle my level of suffering. I wish I could come on the picnic, but I'll just stay here and suffer. You go ahead. And of course, that's a caricature. But there is a hiding behind suffering there is using suffering as something that gives us a reason for not participating at the fullest level. There is the diminution of, diminution of suffering that it brings about a flow of attention to oneself. So psychiatrists, when they say nearly half of the Western population is afflicted by this, there are varying degrees of it. You know, to what extent do we want people to give us a little bit of a suffering trophy? You know, you suffer more than me. I don't know how you stand it being at home suffering like that. 
with your incurable diseases. My God, you're an amazing achiever. I'm just breathing breaths all day like the way you do and barely being able to do that. Amazing. That's the suffering trophy. So we, to some extent or another, we may also use suffering as a competition. Someone comes home and says, wow, I had a hard day of work. And someone else comes home before or after and says, Haha, you think you had a hard day's work? Well, I'm not even going to tell you about mine. But since you said you had a hard day's work, let's hear about it. And then comes the suffering competition. Who suffers the most? You suffer the most, I suffer the most. And whoever wins the competition causes the other one to fall into shameful silence. <laughs> and <laughs> so <laughs> along comes the Vedic worldview. Suffering should be foreign to the human state, the human condition. How can it be? How can it be so? Well, let's start with your brain size. Our human nervous system is made up, the nervous system is made up of neuronal material. And we have hundreds of billions of these neurons. From about the Adam's apple up, somewhere between 10 and 12 billion neurons intracranial. And Below the Adam's apple, about a hundred billion neurons make up our nervous system. <laughs> so with these billions of neurons in our brain, what's, what are we doing with all of that? Some of you may have read Dr. Norman Deutsch's book. This is a neuroscientist who wrote a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And he opened his first chapter of his first book, opens with the story of the father of a friend of his, his friend also a doctor who had a stroke, long story short, recovered from the stroke, 11 years later died of other causes. After having regained from his, after his stroke, he went through rehabilitation and he regained almost all of his gross and fine motor performance capability. He knew how to speak other languages beside English. He was a primary English speaker and he regained his fluency and so on. But when he died, there was an autopsy performed to see how bad that stroke had affected him 11 years before. Actually, it was more like 13 years because he had two years of rehab. So say 13 years before that. And it turned out that his entire brain had been killed by that stroke, except for his brainstem. He had only his brainstem left. Now the brain stem is this little place back here in the back of the head. It's, you know, surrounded by a neuronal mass called the R complex. And R stands for reptilian, by the way, that part of your brain from which lots of your base behaviors and stress reactions and so on come from that spot. But in this rehab, somehow, without us knowing exactly how, this man had regained all of his functions using this part of the brain that is just a little bigger than the thumb. And that was driving all those behaviors and languages and everything for 11, 12, 13 years. Now this immediately makes us wonder, well, what's the rest of the brain doing? <laughs> if you can do everything that you do with this tiny little chunk of neurons 
And you know, not everybody does, but what's the rest of the brain doing? It's not lying dormant, by the way. It's active. We know it's active because when we measure the brain, every part of the brain is active. Every part of the brain is firing. But what's it up to? We know that the brain's not just being behaving in a redundant fashion, but what's happened is that over the years, we have accumulated stresses. Stresses are stress triggers. These are the ways in which we hold the memory of overloads of experience. And I'm not talking about holding it psychologically only. You may have forgotten many of the overloads of perception and emotion and so on that you've had in a lifetime. Perhaps you've forgotten. But whether you consciously have access to these or not, stored in chemical form in the cells of your body are memories of having had those experiences and what the predominant colors were at the time, the smells, the sounds, the taste, and so on, the weather, the feeling, the humidity, all of that. And that snapshot of all of those things that were around at a time when you got stressed, the music that was playing at the time and so on, is not stored as a conscious or even subconscious bit of data. It is stored subliminally and it is stored in the cells of the body. And your body has decided that those colors, you got stressed once and you were maybe standing over here holding this leaf, you thought it was Katya and you looked and it was the Prime Minister of Canada instead. <laughs> and you got a shock. But you were holding the leaf and looking at this green thing. And when you got a shock and you said, oh, Mr. Trudeau, I didn't realize that you'd come to the meeting. I'm sorry that, you know, whatever. And you recover from that. But your brain memorizes the feeling of that leaf and the green color. And we refer to this in cognitive neuroscience as a premature cognitive commitment. In common language, we just call it a stress trigger. What's the stress trigger? Not Trudeau. Sudden surprise of Trudeau sitting there. No. It's the green leaf and the feel of it. Maybe somebody over here was wearing rose perfume, and I was getting, and they are too, and I was getting rose perfume while feeling the green leaf and getting the Trudeau shock. Intellectually, I could get over the Trudeau shock in minutes, but my body's got this memory where it has made an assumption that those smells, that feeling, those colors mean danger, <clears throat> danger, fight or flee. And then intellectually, you forget all about it and you make friends with Pierre and all that, or what was his name? Justin, that was, Pierre was his father. You make friends with Justin and have your cup of tea and do your Instagrams and off he goes back to Toronto. And you know, you've got through that week, but your body now has a stress in it that is green and feels like that leafy thing and smells like rose and so on. And you don't know about that. For your brain to hold on to and your nervous system to hold on to that information 
Watch out for green, especially green if there's rose smell nearby. For your body and brain to hold on to that requires dedicated neuronal mass. A certain amount of brain power has to hang on to that presumption, which, by the way, is not actually accurate. The green actually didn't have anything to do with you getting stressed. It's just the brain hedging its bets. Accumulation of one of these after another, and one after another. One day you get invited to your friend's house and they have a nice green banana leaf that they place down in front of you. They're going to serve you a Thai dish on the leaf and they bring the rose tea and place it down. <laughs> and you have no idea what's going to happen next because you have no memory of any of this. But your body begins to generate stress reactivity. And it does so without asking you. It doesn't ask your permission. Is it okay now because you remember back in the days when Trudeau was at that thing and all that? There's no intellectual access to what the stress trigger was. Now we're being very simplistic here. Let's multiply this times 100,000. Supposing you have 100,000 premature cognitive commitments. Why do we call them premature? It's the way in which the mind and brain together prematurely have made a commitment to the meaning of that color and that smell and so on. The danger meaning. It's premature. Those things haven't actually attacked you yet, but they could. So as we build up these layers upon layers upon layers of stress triggers, our brain's capacity to compute relevant behavior is narrowed down to a tiny, tiny percentage. And our brain's reactivity to the ambient smells and colors and sounds of the world in which we walk or move, our brain's backdrop reactivity is wildly irrelevant. So what's being generated constantly into the body is the kinds of chemistry that prepare you to fight and flee even when there's nothing particularly stressful around. And your adaptation energy levels, your energy that you use to adapt with, are eaten up daily by this. So not only is your brain's computing power narrowed down to a tiny percentage of what it could be, because it's the brain's being used up holding on to all these stress programs, but the body also is assailed by minor things causing you to get more stress because your adaptation energy levels are so low due to the fact that that fuel of adaptation energy is being consumed by this constant uptake of energy from all of these stresses and all the little irrelevant reactions that are going on. And it means that a huge amount of our capacity to see what's coming or even to see what has come, which is right in front of us, or to understand what just now happened a huge amount of that is obscured. And we have a lack of clarity about what's coming. 
we have a lack of clarity about what's right in front of us, and we have a total lack of clarity about things that have just gone into the past, out of the present and into the past. And consequently, our assumptions about the world are faulty and inaccurate. And when we have faulty and inaccurate assumptions and perception of the world, then we get gross suffering. Suffering begins to occur because the world is demanding something of you. It's demanding something of you different every day. The world constantly is changing. When you look at what the brain's up to on a daily basis, an horrendous percentage of what your brain's actually offering to you is A, repetitive, B, irrelevant. Irrelevant, repetitious behavior and thinking. Now, why is it so? It's because without meditation, we lack the technique for resting the body and brain regularly enough to remove stress at a rate that is faster than it can reaccumulate. Let me phrase that a different way. When people don't meditate, their bodies accumulate stress daily at a faster rate than they can possibly release it just by a night's sleep. And that's largely because there's a paradox. The night's sleep is interrupted by the activity of unstressing. The night's sleep is made shallow and not deep because of the physiological activity and all the rapid eye movement that's going on in the brain from the body desperately trying to get rid of a stress load in one night of sleeping that it can't possibly do before the dawn comes. And you can only sleep for a certain number of hours every night, not just from the point of view of the demands of your diary, but also from the point of view that your brain has a certain tolerance for how long it will allow you to stay actually asleep. So then the dreaming activity begins during the sleep and that dreaming activity, though it is a, a product of stress release and all the rapid eye movement and so on that's going on, these are the artifacts of unstressing, causes the restfulness of the horizontal state to be rather th slim, very thin. If we measure the oxygen consumption of a person and look at that as a measure of, and it's a very effective measure, of how much their body is resting, in a night's sleep, in eight hours of sleeping, the oxygen consumption of a subject, average subject, only drops five to 10% through the night. And that five to 10% is not deep enough rest to get rid of all the stresses that have been accumulated. Consequently, you wake up every day with more stress than you had yesterday. During Vedic meditation, your body rests, goes all the way down in novice meditators who've only been meditating one week. They get a drop of oxygen consumption by 20% while meditating. One week of meditation. Longer term meditators, six weeks, seven weeks, start hitting the minus 50 oxygen consumption while meditating. They're not trying to hold their breath or anything. The red blood cells themselves are consuming less oxygen because that body 
has plenty of oxygen in it. And it doesn't need to be breathing lots of air in and out. And so your body begins to rest very, very deeply. This is shown by, and you feel this when you meditate, your breath gets soft and shallow, and sometimes it even appears to stop. It is actually still going. It's just very microscopic tidal volume of breath. So your body's resting deeply, and then in that context, your body begins to unstress itself. And as it unstresses itself, it's removing and neutralizing all the chemistry that basically is saying, fight or flee, fight or flee, it's green, fight or flee, it smells like rose, fight or flee, it's this, that humidity, that thing, that color, that feeling, that place, that music, fight or flee, fight or flee, fight or flee, that triggered binary reaction, either fight or flee, in response to what? I'm, I'm a little late, or I saw a color, or I this, or I smelled something, or whatever. And so then as the stress chemistry ceases to dominate the body of the meditator, as the weeks and months and a few years, not lifetime years, a few years of meditation go by, the person's baseline biochemistry begins to change very dramatically. And what is the fight-flight chemistry succeeded by? I refer to it as the stay and play chemistry. Stay and play. You can stay and play because you're adaptive. You have the capacity to meet demands with capability. And you start to see that and notice that. And that reactivity that's causing all that irrelevant thinking, all that fizz and effervescing of irrelevant thinking starts to decrease and decrease and decrease. And this shows up in the body and the body feeds it back to the mind and the mind feeds it back to the body. And what is that? It is the sense of, I have capability. And if demands come and almost all demands ask the same thing, change your expectations right now. If there's a sudden loud noise, that's a demand for you to change your expectation. You didn't expect a sudden loud noise. And so if you have to adapt to that, maybe you adapt to it effectively or maybe you maladapt. And if you maladapt, you come away with a stress. If you adapt effectively, then you might have a heightened reaction, but you come away with having recovered, having come back to homeostasis. Homeostasis means your full repertoire. One of the hallmarks of meditators, meditators do not stop getting stressed. No, they stop staying stressed. As a meditator, an interesting thing happens. This was shown at the University of Texas in Austin way back in the 70s. Dr. David Orm Johnson did a study on people practicing transcendental meditation. They'd only been meditating for about three weeks. And what he did was to take the three-week level meditators and take a control group that were matched in various ways. I won't talk about all the controlled parts of the study. It's too boring. And they were put into a room where a harmless but stressful stimulus was presented. And the harmless but stressful stimulus was a sudden loud noise appearing from behind some curtains. And to make it a little bit more Pavlovian, Orm Johnson 
every time the klaxon horns behind the curtain fired off and let out 80 decibels of sound to shock the subjects who were sitting there, he had the curtains wiggle a little bit to match that. The people who meditated had a larger reaction. Initial reaction was larger. They were more perceptive and more sensitive. But the speed of recovery was phenomenally quick compared with the non-meditators. The non-meditators had a smaller initial reaction, but with each successive presentation at random of this loud sound, the non-meditators had progressively bigger and bigger stress reactions with each presentation of the horns. The meditators had an initial large reaction, larger than the non-meditators, but progressively with each presentation of the sound, they had an adaptive response. They ceased responding to it. The non-meditators then, and the meditators both, were subjected to wiggle the curtains without the sound because the brain had associated the wiggling curtains with the sound coming. All you had to do was wiggle the curtains. The meditating group had no reaction, virtually very tiny reaction, but almost no significant reaction to the wiggling silent curtains. The non-meditating group had almost the same reaction to the wiggling curtains as they had to the initial presentation. Big stress reaction, premature cognitive commitment. The curtains were not actually the cause of the sound, obviously, but they were associated by the brain. So what we learn from Orm Johnson's study is that meditators actually are more sensitive, more perceptive. They have a bigger effect size, but they recover rapidly. You see, getting stressed is not the problem. It is staying stressed that is the problem. You have a stress reaction, it might save your life. It's possible. But it's not going to save your life if it continues an hour later, two hours later, three hours later, one month later, and then you know you're some little old granny sitting in a room saying, I can't go on the picnic because, you know, I have these problems. The long-term effect of accumulating stress is extreme. It causes immunosuppression. It causes nervous disorders. But worst of all, it causes brain clutter. And when we have brain clutter, we cannot come up with the relevant response to the demands of the environment. What we have is repetition. The same thoughts you had yesterday, the same thoughts you had the day before, which were the same thoughts you had the day before that, and the same thoughts you had the day before that. John Eccles, the Nobel Prize winning neurologist, reckoned that in the 20th century, which is when he won his Nobel Prize, people he measured had on average one to 2% maximum originality in a day. 98% of the thoughts and reactions they had in a given day when tracked over a long period of time were the same thoughts and reactions they'd had the previous day. When nature is constantly asking something new of us, but we keep coming up with the same responses, the same reactions, the same fears, the same 
perhaps illogical and irrelevant responses to what turns out to be mostly a friendly environment that's just asking something new of you, then we end up having irrelevant behavior. And when we have irrelevant behavior, all kinds of things go haywire. Our social relationships go haywire. Our ability to be productive goes haywire. We end up having very low capability and we're very susceptible to disease. So when the Vedic worldview says that suffering should be foreign to the human, it's not saying, oh, and if you're suffering, that's blameworthy. It goes on to state the cause of it. And the cause of it is referred to in Sanskrit as sanskara. What is sanskara? It's where we get our English word scar. A scar, something that's a leftover impression from a wound, something that's a residual impression from a wound. Sanskara is where consciousness and physiology hold on to an old thing and don't seem to be able to get past it or release it. Sanskara. And in the Vedic language, when you meditate, sanskaras are dissolved. They didn't know about stress and physiology in the way we do today. But they talked about sanskaras being dissolved. As the mind goes inward and touches on that inner state of pure consciousness or being, that condition of being, pure consciousness, pure creative intelligence, the fountainhead, delicately imprints itself on the ego. The ego is in the Vedic psychology, that layer of the mind, which is that part of you that assembles an identity. Normally it is, I should say, usually, not normally, usually the ego is outward looking. It's looking for identity in the outside world. Someone says to you, you're a bad boy. And you don't have much to refute that, so bad boy goes in. And it's there in the ego structure. And then there are other things that come in, oh, that's pretty good, that's fine, that's good, good job, good job. But then once in a while someone says, oh, you're a bad boy, aren't you? And deep inside that ego structure is that little thing that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm available for the bad boy thing because that's been inside me ever since childhood. Now when you keep accumulating identity from outside stimuli, they come in and the things that repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat are the things that end up being those things with which your ego identifies. And the ego begins to have a sense of I am and then starts listing qualities. It has a list of qualities, quality number one, quality number two, number three, number four, number five. When we meditate, what happens is the ego is forced to look inward and it doesn't look outward anymore. Those moments during meditation where you forget what you're doing, but you're conscious, you've lost the mantra and thought has vanished, the ego is looking straight inward at the unbounded field of being. And that unbounded field of being is the infinite reservoir of creative intelligence. The Vedas hold that it is the unified field itself the field of infinite potentiality that from which the entire universe is manifest, being. That's imprinted on the ego. 
When you come back out of meditation, the ego flips back outward again. And it still has, you know, you're a bad boy and you're a this and you're a pretty good whatever and this and that and that. But in amongst all of that relativity, it has unboundedness. I am totality has been printed in there. And the other things that are in the ego structure that don't sit well with I am totality, like, you know, for example, I'm a good scammer. That doesn't sit very well with I am totality. That has to go. This is the Vedic description of what's going on with the sanskaras, these impressions. Day goes by and you meditate again. And you meditate and the ego goes inward looking and has totality printed on it again. And that inner I am totality continues to imprint and imprint and imprint on that ego. Now that ego is the deepest layer of your mind. And your mind is that which prints out this body. If inside of you, you are a jumble of identities, all of which are kind of juxtaposed uncomfortably with each other, that have only come from outside in your lifetime, then your body will print out a jumble of behaviors, very few of which will be relevant to any given moment. But when your inner reality is now being exposed on a daily basis, every morning, every evening, every morning, every evening, that state of being is imprinted. Eventually, that starts taking over as what your inner identity is. And when that starts taking over, as it's taking over, your mind and your brain together begin printing out a body which has total capability the body of enlightenment. So the neurophysiology of, enlight of enlightenment actually is the psycho-neurophysiology, psycho-mind, neuro-brain, physiology, body, of a new experiencer inside. That new experiencer literally reshapes the entire body, changes all of its chemical structures, all of its electrical functions, all of its neuronal connectivity, even how much density, neuronal density, meaning brain mass or neuronal mass, you have in different parts of your brain. Meditators end up with a lot more neuronal mass in the parts of their brain with which they empathize with others. Empathy means, in case you don't know, it means the ability to experience from within another to have an interest in and a, an ability to relate to what somebody else is experiencing. We could call that compassion, but it's a little more than compassion actually. It's a direct experience. Compassion might be a feeling that you have, but empathy is a direct experience that you're having of what it's like to be the other. And, you know, so this greater and greater capability to experience so-called others as extended self. Others are no longer others to whom I can't relate and who might make me stressed, but if they behave just like me, then they make me happy. Other now starts to become more self-like. One starts to experience selfness in other. And when other starts to be experienced more and more as self, then 
the world starts to change and you begin to realize that the world in which you're living is a world of need, but you, the one who's living inside here, are a field of total capability. I have capability. I'm not a big bag of neediness anymore. What I am is something that is seeking where is need and looking for that and finding it and interacting with it and bringing to it creativity, intelligence, stability, energy, adaptation, and all of that. And so then one starts to grow and grow in this value and it becomes more and more rare for you to find situations, first of all, that can cause you to be stressed or on the rare occasion that you do get stressed, rapid recovery, rapid recovery. You might have noticed this as meditators. You know, you have a little argument with somebody and in the past that would have made you kind of go a bit bonkers for days or made your behavior with that person a little brittle for days. But within five minutes or 10 minutes, you find that you're over it. And you might even wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I stay angry? You know, I want to stay angry and I can't. I've got good reasons. Now let's see what were they. You can't even remember what they were. What were the reasons? And so the speed of recovery, you might get a wave of sadness. And the sadness, because of, you know, we learned from Warm Johnson, deeper than what's average but rapid recovery and then back to full repertoire again, not hanging on to and continuing to behave sad for the next 10 years. Sad for the next 10 years, not actually relevant to the need of the time. Angry for a long period, not relevant to the need of the time. Time's need is changing every minute. Fear constantly frightened, not relevant to the need of the time. Fear is in abundance out there. The world doesn't need you also to be fearful. Sadness is in abundance out there. It's great to be sad. Feel it deeply and then recover. That's what we want. Speed of recovery. We don't want not to experience these things. It's fine to experience them fully, but rapid adaptation. So through these mechanics of the growth of enlightenment, enlightenment means when that inner field of being has now in a very stable way become your sense of what you are. The field of being is a stronger identifier of your amness, what you are. It's a stronger identifier of what you are than I'm a diabetic or I'm a hurt person, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, or whatever. When those things are minimized in terms of identifying you, and what identifies you more powerfully than anything else, is this sense of, which you can experience with eyes open, not even in meditation. I am totality. Not those words, but that feeling is there spontaneously. And it, it feels to you like whatever demands come, bring it on. I'll interact with it. If it's relevant, if it's relevant for me to interact, don't bring me everything, but you know, bring me things and I'll interact with those. And when you have a successful interaction between your inner potential 
and a demand, successful interaction yields a wave of happiness. When you have an unsuccessful interaction, when you maladapt in the face of a demand, then you get a wave of fear, anger, or sadness. And then that tends to stay and stay and stay, suffering. So the way to recover from the mistake of suffering is to gain enlightenment. And gaining enlightenment is ridiculously simple. You sit in a chair twice a day for 20 minutes and kind of forget what you're doing. Start thinking the mantra, you feel like you're forgetting, that's what you're supposed to feel like. You're forgetting what you're doing, you're actually doing it, good. Continue with that, continue forgetting. When you get into that state where you realize consciously mantra's gone, faint remembrance, faint mantra, faint, 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 but only so long as it's effortless to repeat, and then when you feel you're losing it again, don't hold on, let go. You sit in a chair doing that twice each day. And from that, you grow into someone who is no longer one of the billions of suffering human beings on the earth. Someone who can actually bring capability to all of that. And this is what the world needs. This is the need of the time. You know, someone's crying over there, you go over, you cry too, and then somebody sees two people crying, they come over and say, what's this all about? Now three people are crying, and then four and five and six, and there's a thousand people crying on one street corner. This is not the way to bring a thousand people out of suffering. The way to bring a thousand people out of suffering is for somebody who has capability to arrive on the scene. And where are those people? Well, they're here. I always tell you this, you know, you are the people of New York City, this giant incomparable metropolitan mass that's on the east coast of America. Really, let's talk about it honestly, it's the headquarters of the world, right? That's what this place is, that's why people are here. Nobody has to live in New York. From here, we could create enough of a collective neuronal mass of non-suffering people that we could start radiating that out to the world. Everybody look to New York. What's New York up to? Whatever that is, that's it. And so we could do that. We're going to do that. We have lots of ideas for doing that. The most important thing is for you to enjoy wisdom and radiate life for all to enjoy. Thanks for listening. Jay Gurudev. Thanks. Thanks. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.